I'm Damian Bulwa, Metro Editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. A warning off the top, this podcast includes graphic and sometimes disturbing details about a murder, and it may not be appropriate for all listeners. Today, a special episode of Fifth Admission. We have Matthias Gaffney, a reporter, to talk about his story, The Suspect Next Door. When a 94-year-old woman was viciously attacked in her own home, was the killer right in front of detectives all along. Matthias is right here with me. For the past nine months, he's been investigating the horrific death of Leola Shreves in Yuba City, north of Sacramento. What he found out about the killing and about the investigation is shocking. You will not want to miss the ending. And to read the full story, find it at sfchronicle.com slash confession. Matthias, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Matthias, what led you to go to Yuba City? Wow. So this was about last April when I actually saw a tweet and it was talking about this arrest of an individual in Yuba City, um, was agricultural town kind of, you know, uh, north of Sacramento. And this individual had been arrested using this new DNA technology. And um, And we've talked about it a lot, right? Exactly. Genealogy databases and such. I've spent a lot of time reporting on the Golden State Killer and genetic genealogy. And so I was just kind of intrigued by that arrest. And I thought there's some new DNA technology I might report on. And so I started looking into uh, the case and this 2013 murder of Shreves. And it was terrible um, and just, uh, you know, torture involved and really gruesome. Uh, And I quickly learned, though, that this was not the first arrest in Shreves' murder which got caught my um, eye, obviously. It was a second. And that first individual who had been arrested for her murder had been jailed for three and a half years. And so I really just wanted to find out what the full story was. Okay, and what did you find out? Well, it's long and sorted, but basically three things really popped out. Um, The first case involving uh, an individual involved a confession. And so... This individual had spent three and a half years in jail and admitted to killing Leola Shreves. And so secondly, um, this individual, I started realizing as I poked in that there was very little evidence, physical evidence. And there was, I mean, this is a crime scene. Besides the confession. Besides the confession. I mean, this is a crime scene full of blood, um, fingerprints, footprints, you name it. um, And yet... Uh, there was very little evidence um, other than the confession um, uh, involved with this first arrest. And then thirdly, uh, I realized pretty quickly that, you know, this wasn't going to be a simple story about DNA technology advancements, right? This is like, this is, it was just one on curveball after another, you know, when you're doing a long story and an in-depth story like this, it takes time. And as you're doing that, you know, fires break out and other events happen on a day to day basis that pushes stuff along. And what I found out with this story was the long, the, the longer it took for me to report, I'd find 15 other new elements to it and it would just take it all different directions. Yeah, an amazing case. I can't believe it was more than nine months ago we first started talking about it. And it really gets at the heart of a lot of big issues in the criminal justice system. Matthias, let's start at the beginning. Who was Leola Shreves, the victim in this case? And how was she killed? Yeah, gosh, it's hard to find a more sympathetic um, victim in this case. Leola Shrees was a great, great grandmother. Um, when she passed away, she had 13 great, great grandchildren. Um, 
And, you know, she asked her neighbors and her friends to call her Grandma Dodie. Um, she was very independent at that age. Um, she had lived alone in that house um, uh, since 2001 after her husband Merle died. Um, and her her death just was incredibly horrific. Um, she was savagely beaten. The, the theory is that the assailant used um, the metal cane that she used uh, to beat her because they found evidence on her back of those markings. And she was basically found face down in her bedroom. Um, underneath her was crumpled her kind of aluminum walker that she used. Um, and they found defensive injuries on her, which, you know, she fought back against this attack. 911, what is your emergency? A break-in and my mother-in-law's been killed. Been killed? Yes. Why do you think... She's cold. She's dead. No pulse. She's dead. She's cold. She's dead. In cases like this in a small town, obviously there's huge interest in finding out who did it, finding out why, and and making sure people understand why, because they want to know there isn't a, a killer out there. In the beginning, did police have any idea who the murderer was and what the motive was. Were there any clues? No, there wasn't much to go on at first. Um, Obviously, as I said before, there was a ton of physical evidence, um, blood everywhere. It was ransacked inside most of the house, um, broken windows and such. And you said blood. I mean, blood of the the victim and the uh, attacker? Blood of the victim and the attacker. Um, And they, as they were um, collecting all this evidence, they're sending it off to a lab and, and whatnot. So they're at, in these early days, they're waiting for results to come back. But, you know, they did normal police work. They canvassed the neighborhood, asked if anyone saw any, anything suspicious. Um, they There was reports of Dodie having, like, talked to this magazine salesperson who was going door to door. And the guy, like, barged his way in and wanted money. And she kind of gave him some money to go away. But nothing really firm. There was... Um, something a couple blocks away that I saw in police records where a police officer spoke to this neighbor, maybe two blocks away. And she said the day that they believe Dodie was killed, um, that she saw a peeper in her window, basically like cupping his windows to the glass and, uh, looking in. And when she pulled up, she was scared. And, and the guy like drove off because, um, the husband came out of the room and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, and one thing that's important to note with this case is, Police found her body on uh, January 21st, 2013, but they believe she was killed three days earlier. So they had, you know, they were at a disadvantage from the start, knowing that this murder had happened a a couple days before. Okay, gotcha. So the focus of your story is a man named Michael Alexander. At some point, detectives turned their focus to him. What happened? Yeah, um, it's crazy how it all came to this but they're they're inside the house dusting for fingerprints looking at you know glass shards and other physical evidence and they suddenly hear a scream and it's not just your average scream this is a they called it you know pretty loud scream sound anger behind it and it came from next door and so these two detectives walked over and they knocked on alexander's door and uh they had already kind of had a little bit of concern about him. He had offered up some, um, uh, a tip to them early on, um, as they were investigating in the first day or so where he said he thought he heard like a cat on the fence making a noise the night of her death. And they were, they were kind of like, that's weird. Cause this fence is pretty firm and you wouldn't hear a noise on it. So they kind of were already wondering him about it a little bit, but then they hear this scream and they walk over and they basically, and this is, we have a recording of this, 
encounter. They were tape recorded at the, the officers and they met him on his porch with his sister and they see his hands trembling and they kind of ask both the sister and him to pull up their pant legs and, and their, sh- their shirts and they see this wound above his knee. What, what's that from? I scraped it. Oh, okay. How'd you scrape it? Just walked into a door and oh. scraped it. About how long ago was that? About today. Today? Mm-hmm. Okay. That was Michael Alexander. He was 20 at the time of the murder. Matthias, who was Michael? Yeah, so uh, he was a gamer. I mean, he loved video games. Uh, when he wasn't playing video games, he was watching video videos of how to play video games and, you know, chatting with the online community of video gamers. Um, he had some struggles in schools. Um, he uh, got suspended numerous times for getting into fights. Um, he had uh, some learning disabilities that led to um, special accommodations for him at school um, that a lot of it dealt with his anger. Um, and uh, he also had sought, sought medical um, mental health uh, treatment where he had post-traumatic stress disorder, diagnosed attention deficit disorder, depression. Um, and so he, you know, had a troubled past. Um, he kind of kept to himself in his house and, and played his video games. So either, you know, a troubled, suspicious person or, or perhaps by another measure, a, a very vulnerable person that police go and talk to. Um, they're obviously interested in him. Um, they search his home. And as you write, they bring him in for questioning. Um, they're thinking that maybe they've got the murderer here. Uh, what does Alexander say to the police when they interview him? Yeah, so uh, he's brought in almost immediately after the search warrant into the interrogation room. And he starts out denying any involvement in the murder. He even he goes as far as saying, I've never stepped foot on her property. I mean, he is like vociferous and saying, I did not have anything to do with this. Um, she reminds me of my own grandmother. I would never do something something like that to um, to someone. So they start chipping away in this interrogation using a couple tactics. Um, they focus on that troubled school history that we talked about, that violence in school, and they kind of create an alter ego for him um, and they dub it angry Mike. And so they basically kind of compared him to the Gollum Smeagol character from Lord of the Rings. You know, he's got the good side and the bad side to split personality. Right. And they start asking angry Mike, what, you know, what, what does angry Mike think happened? And they literally at points of this interrogation, like leave the room and say, can you talk to angry Mike and, and see if he says he did it. And then they come back in and, and, um, Alexander says, I talked to him and he, he says he had nothing to do with it. I talked to angry Mike I talked and, they, to angry. and they know he has disabilities. They know he has disabilities. He's young. It's middle of the night. Um, so on top of that, they, they had a, what police call ruses. And that's where essentially where the police depart, the police detectives can lie about what evidence they have. Um, and what they started telling him is was they had his DNA in her house. And how could that have happened if you've never stepped foot on the property? Right. You know, and it's important to note that at this point in his first interview, they had no DNA test back. You know, they thought that his shoe print might match what was found there. They thought that his blood was going to match, but they had no firm evidence um, linking him to that blood. Uh, and so during this interview, they literally ask him for a DNA swab from his cheek and he, 
um, says they can do it. They come in, they swab his cheek. Someone leaves with the envelope full of his um, uh, the, the the swabs from his cheek. And maybe 15 or so minutes later, um, the detectives come back in and say, hey, we got the results back. And, uh, you know, we have we have the entire transcript of this uh, interrogation. And you hear them say, well, do you think is good news or bad news, Mike? And they and he says something to the effect of, you know, in my heart, um, I, I think is uh, good news. But my stomach saying is bad news. And they're like, it's bad news. And so from there, you know, they're saying we got your DNA in there. What do you have to say for yourself? Wow. So it, it sounds like something out of a, a Law & Order episode. Um, these ruses, uh, lying, uh, making up scenarios, are they, are they legal? Yeah, it's, it's legal. Um, it's, it's, you know, the idea is that um, even if you're presented with this evidence that your DNA or whatever is found in a, in a crime scene that, you know, for such a heinous crime or any crime that an innocent person would still not say they did it. Um, and so uh, these, it's important to note that false confession experts, though, point at these ruses, especially to a vulnerable suspect um, like a Michael Alexander, that that um, and someone with, you know, diminished faculties, potentially, that those ruses can really set them off um, uh, towards a false confession. You know, they, they want to appease the police officers that they're dealing with. And, and uh, you know, they're, they, they can be fooled by that. Okay. And, and just to note before we go on, just uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the police department and the courts would not give you the transcripts of these confessions, all of the records, and yet you obtain them anyway. And that's why we're hearing about them. Correct. Um, I asked the DA police department. Um, none of them wanted to share much of the evidence at all. Um, and we had to obtain it through other means. Okay. Back to the interrogation. Does Alexander stick with his story that he had nothing to do with it? No. Um, uh, eventually as hours progress, the, the interrogation turns, um, and he basically it's, they get, they start asking him to hypothesize about what he thinks may have happened to Leela Shreves. And then from there they say, well, what does angry Mike think happened to Leela Shreves? And at, after all these ruses and talking about the DNA evidence and that's in there, he starts saying, well, maybe angry Mike has something to do with it. And eventually he says what he thinks angry Mike did. And then, you know, it's a very tortured, uh, confession, if you will, of what they're, they're getting from him. And I think it's clear in the transcripts, the detectives realize that, you know, you can't have this ulterior ego fault, you know, angry Mike confessing, and that's not going to cut it. And so they kind of try to work it back and, and talk to him about, well, you know, angry Mike really is just kind of like regular Mike, right? Like you two are the same people. So if angry Mike did it, then, uh, then you did it also. And, uh, you know, he kind of gives up and he's, he, he confesses and basically says, you know, long story short, he says, you know, he knocked on Leo Lachery's door, asked for money. She said, no, he left, he goes home, he breaks in through her bedroom window and, um, uh, to get the money beats her up and then leaves and, uh, that's it. And they got their confession. All right, Matthias, let's take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about a big development in the case when the DNA evidence comes back from the blood at this murder scene. 
Welcome back. I'm Damian Bullwood. This is the Fifth Admission Podcast. Reporter Matthias Gaffney is here. We're talking about the murder case of Leola Shreves in Yuba City, California. Matthias, on January 29th, 2013, Michael Alexander, the next door neighbor to Shreves, was charged with a bunch of things, including murder and torture and mayhem. Uh, the district attorney says he's going to go for the death penalty. But then something big happens. The DNA from the scene comes back. All this blood, not only from the victim, but of the alleged attacker. And it doesn't match Michael Alexander. Yeah. Um, at the time, this wasn't public. So no one knew about this. But it was uh, obviously an enormous turn in the case. Um, and it's uh, a few days after he's charged by the DA that the first blood tests from some of this blood, some of the blood from the blood trail outside the house and some from inside the house, um, they all come back to a male, but it's not Michael. Okay. And then Michael does something unusual, right? He actually comes back. A lot of people want to have a lawyer present. He actually comes back and tries to talk again to the detectives that had gotten the confession out of him. Yeah, he 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 pings the detectives and says, hey, I want to talk again. And his intention is to to recant his uh, earlier confession. And, you know, at this point, the he doesn't know it, but the detectives know that the blood in the house has not matched him. And so they're kind of also wondering how they're going to pursue and go forward with this case. And so like right from the get go, we have the transcript of that second um, interrogation as well. And right from the get go. Um, Michael Alexander comes in and he's like, so have you found a real killer? And basically the police detectives start out by saying, well, who did it with you? They basically say, okay, we know there's this blood inside there, um, from someone else. Clearly Michael Alexander was there with someone else, um, who did the killing with him. So it wasn't like this is going to exonerate him, this DNA evidence. It's more like, okay, you were an accomplice. Who else was there with you? And he starts going off on all sorts of tangents about various people from skate parks that he met that day and other people who, you know, he met a week earlier. And it was clear um, that he was lying and making up these stories, trying to, like, fit the detectives what they were saying happened. Um, and it got really nasty at the end. He got super angry. Um, they kind of brought his family into it. Uh, he gets into a yelling match with the detectives, starts swearing. And he eventually breaks this hidden camera on the wall that was hidden behind a thermostat. Fast forward three years. Matthias, Michael Alexander has been in jail awaiting trial. The blood evidence at the scene matches not him, but someone else. And then tell us what happened on August 19th, 2016. Yeah, so I mean, there's been delay after delay, retest of blood after retest of blood. Um, and so he's uh, Michael Alexander's brought back into court and he's oblivious to what's about to happen. Um, but they, the DA's office, uh, files a motion with the court, uh, and they want to dismiss all charges. And they say there's not a speck of physical evidence that matches Alexander. They say there was a possible false confession. Um, and, uh, he's freed that day. Um, but to be clear, they were not saying the DA's office and police were not saying that this was an innocent man. Um, they, they talked to local media right after court and the DA herself was saying, I don't believe this was a false confession. And she made it clear that, you know, murder has no statute of limitations. And so they could always bring up charges against Michael down the road. The case then is far from over. Leola Shreve's murderer is still out there. The case is unsolved. 
And then in April 2018, there's this other gigantic crime story that breaks in California. I know you covered it. What happened? Yeah, it's the Golden State Killer case or the East Area Rapist case that was just as infamous serial killer, serial rapist case in California that, you know, had been uh, uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, there's just this huge leap in for criminal forensics where they uh, catch the person uh, who's uh, responsible for this. Uh, the uh, uh, Joseph D'Angelo is arrested and it's all done through this uh, um, DNA technology where they basically taped the crime scene DNA uh, from those crimes in the 1970s and 1980s and they create a DNA profile out of it. And they basically take that and upload it to this uh, online database where people go to find their long lost relatives, you know, like um, 23andMe and Ancestry.com, those kind of things when you can upload it to these, um, you know, separate databases to look for relatives. And they basically went through there and they found an incredibly distant match um, to the person who did the Golden State Killer murders. A possible relative of the Golden State Killer. A possible distant relative. And they used... um, uh, they created, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, they created ancestral trees, uh, based off of that. And they slowly narrowed it down one after the other to find a male who matched the time who lived in the area. And they broke it down and, and they found an individual who linked, who linked to the crimes and they surveilled him and found his DNA. And it, it turned out that now they've arrest, they arrest and, uh, uh charge Joseph D'Angelo with these murders and rapes. Okay, so they they use some of these advancements then, and they run again the blood from the Leola Shreves crime scene. And they make a match in somewhat similar fashion, right? For the first time. Yeah, so this is a little bit different than the uh, Golden State Killer, how they cracked that case, in that there's this familial DNA that they can use in cases. Um, They have restrictions on what cases they can use it for but for murders for certain. And they basically take the DNA profile from a murder scene, for instance, and they run it through CODIS. And CODIS is basically a big database of all the felons um, across the country. And so in the past, you could look for a male relative. And if it pinged, then you knew, okay, there's um, this, this mystery DNA belongs to a relative of this known felon. So now we have a person to go off of, right? So what the advancement was is now they can look for female felons who are on CODIS. So that's a big, big change. And with that big change, sure enough, they get from Leola Shree's, the blood in Leola Shree's house, they get a hit on a female relative of whoever did it. And from there, they basically looked at her relatives and who could possibly be old enough and fit all the other um, you know, parameters of living near Yuba City and whatnot. And so they, it comes back to a man named Armando Arias Quadras. And again, they surveil him. They follow him. He spits out sunflower seeds. They scoop him up with his saliva on it, and they nail it down. His DNA matches the one that was found, the blood that was found inside Leola Shreve's house. So he had known all along that the blood at the scene did not belong to Michael Alexander because they had run those tests, right? It was a mystery man, and, and now we know who it is. Um, I wonder, you mentioned earlier a, a peeper down the street from Leola Shreve's home who had uh, seen a man cupping his hands against her window. Do we now know if that was this man Quadras, the, uh, who the DNA test made a match to? We don't know. Um, 
I particularly started focusing on that as I went along because uh, that neighbor, the description of the peeper kind of match Quadris. Um, and obviously now that we know Quadris has been arrested and charged in it, I was wondering, um, you know, what happened to that, that angle. And in the police reports that I obtained, um, I found that they actually uh, pulled a DNA uh, swab off of the window where that man was touching it, right, for the peeper. And so I was like, oh, well, that would be incredible evidence, you know, in the prosecution of Armando Quadris if this matched his DNA, considering you know, like he's two blocks away from the murder scene in the same day, right? Um, so I go to Yuba City Police and I call him up and say, well, um, what happened with the peeper DNA? Um, did that match uh, Quadris? And they reply to me, uh, we don't have, I don't know what you're talking about. We don't have any DNA from um, that incident. So I basically emailed them the copy of their own police report showing them that indeed DNA was pulled from the window. And I got a reply from them saying like, thanks for bringing this to our attention. We're going to now test this. So they are now going to go test this DNA, but um, that was not too long ago. So I don't believe that's been um, determined yet. Wow. Okay. With Quadris charged, did police then clear Michael Alexander's name? No. Um, And that, frankly, was when I first jumped on this story, I expected this to be like, oh, here's a story clearing Michael Alexander's name um, since they have this new guy arrested, right? But in fact, they have refused to exonerate him and they still won't say that he didn't have a role in it. All right. Matias, as you were finishing this story, this was in November. There was another big development. Armando Quadras was in court for a preliminary hearing in front of a Sutter County judge. There were witnesses. Uh, the judge had to decide whether to send the case to a trial. And I know you were stunned when you heard the testimony. Yeah, I mean, this was a real bombshell in reporting that as a reporter, you just don't kind of have these moments very often. It was it was um, I'm sitting in court right behind Quadris's family. And on the other side is. Leola Shree's, you know, a couple dozen of her um, family members there. And a detective from Yuba City is, is uh, testifying that they found, they now know that on the night that they believe Leola Shree's was murdered, about 300 yards away, someone called for police to come for a man who was lying on this intersection, bloodied um, and drunk and passed out drunk. And uh, it was... Armando Quadras, and he had cuts on his face, scrapes on his face, a big gash to his arm, something that would bleed a lot. Um, he had swollen knuckles um, as well. And he, the police came out there. They were so concerned by it that they went to check on his then wife, thinking it might be a domestic violence incident. He was brought to the hospital and all this happened, you know, the night of the murder. And yet police were investigating this, you know, at the time going around knocking on doors. Did you see anything suspicious on this night hearing from people? And somehow this fell through the cracks. All right. So to be clear, on the night of the killing, Quadris was found passed out on the street just a couple blocks away from the Shreve's home. And he had injuries that were consistent with a struggle and being cut by window glass. Yes. And somehow he's never considered a suspect at the time. Instead, police focus on the next door neighbor, Michael Alexander. Correct. Um, had they, you know, as they're doing their investigation the days after the murder, um, you'd think they would look up any suspicious reports in that neighborhood. 
I mean, we're talking 300 yards away from where she was killed the night that they believe, you know, 3 a.m. the night that they believe she was killed. And, you know, had they seen Quadris bloodied and hospitalized that night, um, they if they that day would have looked it up, checked his DNA it matched the room. They maybe never would have talked to Michael Alexander as a suspect at all. I actually recently asked Michael about that bombshell news and he found out about it from me. When you heard that news, what was your reaction? I was kind of upset about it and didn't really like that they could have done something a long time ago. Matthias, after all of these years, has Michael Alexander been able to at all get his life back? since he got out of jail. No, it's been, it's been a real struggle for him. Um, he, his family moved, um, after his release, um, from Yuba city to Marysville to avoid kind of the spotlights. Um, he lost friends. He had trouble keeping jobs. He tried to get into the military and he couldn't, um, you know, he still had been arrested for a felony. So he's marking down, um, you know, that question on his job applications. Um, he actually, at one point, um, sued in civil court, uh, the DA's office, the detectives, the various people who, you know, had jailed him for three and a half years. And after a bunch of dismissals and a settlement, he wound up getting $50,000, 50,000, $50,000. And so, yeah, it's without being cleared, this case has haunted him for all these years since his release even. And in your phone calls with all of the authorities in Yuba city, they refused to declare him. They refused to consider that he didn't do it. Yeah. They say it's too soon to say whether he had anything to do with it. We're not comfortable in saying that he's completely exonerated from this crime. Even as they prosecute Mr. Quadras. Even as he's nearing trial coming up this spring. Matthias, what an incredible story. Thank you for spending all of this time getting to the bottom of it. And thanks for coming in. Great. Thanks for having me. My guest today has been reporter Matthias Gaffney. To read his story, The Suspect Next Door, to see crime scene photos and hear audio clips from the case, go to sfchronicle.com slash confession. And please subscribe to support work like this at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. Thank you to King Kaufman and Erica Carlos for producing this episode of Fifth and Mission. And thank you for listening.